This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Students have lost as much as a year and three months of in-person schooling and an estimated half year of learning when educators switch to the online over the internet modality. But perhaps all that can be remedied with the billions of new dollars pouring into our educational system. The federal government has passed four separate pieces of legislation giving schools nearly a trillion additional federal dollars. Meanwhile, state and local revenue flows have been enhanced by rising housing prices, rising income among the tax paying well-to-do and strong retail sales. So can all this money undo the educational harms caused by the way in which schools responded to the COVID pandemic? And how should this new money be spent if that damage is going to be reversed? Well, these are really important issues. And I have with me Eric Hanyashek, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, who is an expert in education finance. He's the author of two timely reports just released on the Hoover website entitled Budgeting During and for Recovery and Does the World Change for Teachers? Both these reports contain recommendations for sweeping changes in the way our school system allocates its school dollars. So uh, I'm just delighted to have Eric Hanyashek here on the Education Exchange to his friends. He's known as Rick. And uh, Rick, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, thanks. Thanks for both having me and for bringing up this extraordinarily important topic. Well, Rick, you've just, as I said, you've studied school finance for many years. And in many of your studies, you show that money makes hardly any difference for student learning. So do you really think these federal dollars are going to make a difference? And they really need to if we're going to reverse that learning loss. Well, the story that I've tried to tell for many years is it's not so much how, how much you spend as how you spend it. And the answer here is going to really depend upon how school districts respond to spending it. Right now, I'm a little bit pessimistic because everybody still remains focused on what I would call the logistics of going back to school as opposed to learning. We're concerned about the ventilation of schools, spacing between desks, mask usage, and so forth. Important issues, but in the whole conversation, people seem to forget that learning is also an important thing that we should be discussing. Well, that's certainly true. And yet, you know, your first recommendation in your budgeting uh, report says that the short-term spending must be separated from the long-run steady-state expenditure. So it doesn't, that implies to me it should be focused in on masks and, and just uh, ventilation systems. Or maybe I'm misunderstanding that recommendation. No, I don't think that, that's not what I meant to imply. What I meant to imply is that the first instincts of many schools will be, oh, there's excess money, let's pay our teachers more. And we will lock in higher salaries to the existing teaching stock without ensuring that we're getting a better product and more effective instruction. I think in the short run, we can both think a lot about some of the measurement issues, some of the evaluation issues, some of the 
organizational issues of schools, but we can also put in place incentives to move us uh, in a different direction and toward more learning. So what kinds of incentives do you want to put into place with this federal money? Well, if we think back now, we have 16 months of experience with hybrid learning and remote learning. And I'm hopeful that a number of school districts really learned a lot from this experience. And in particular, that they learned which teachers are particularly effective at remote learning, which teachers are alternatively particularly effective at in-person learning. And that one of the things we do is have incentives to get schools, school systems and school teachers aligned with where they're most effective. So out, coming out of this, I would like to see uh, schools really try to use teachers in the way that they can have the biggest impact because teachers really are central to the whole story. Well, you know, I think in New York City, they're saying every child must come back to school in person and other districts are talking in the same terms. So really how much hybrid and digital learning you really expect to see in the coming school year? Well, I think that that's up in the air right now as the COVID numbers bounce up and down, people change their mind. We had uh, the head of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, suggest that she was hoping that, teach, that schools could be back into normal session in September. And she just did that recently, so one year, one month before the start of the school year. And what we've seen over the entire last year is lots of negotiations about what the configuration of schools is, as opposed to lots of teaching. Well, you know, even if there is a lot of uh, digital learning, uh, hybrid learning uh, in this coming fall, when you start allocating teachers to one modality or another, aren't you going to pretty much rely on what teachers want to do? So some teachers will say, I want to get back into the classroom. And other teachers will say, I don't want to go back. I'm afraid. Won't the district just sort of let teachers pick and choose themselves who wants to do what? I think the best districts will not do that. The best districts, in fact, have considerable information about which teachers are most effective in in-person teaching. And I presume that over the last year, they've also gained a lot in knowledge of which teachers are most effective at remote or hybrid learning situations. Um, what you're really describing is perhaps every teacher has his or her own preferences, but there's an open question about whether district leadership will take on the task of trying to deal with the learning losses that you introduced at the beginning of this talk. Well, I'm sure that's what they should do, but I'm just sort of thinking it's going to be very difficult for them to do because if a teacher says, I don't want to go back in the classroom, I'm willing to teach online, uh, given all this uh, talk about not forcing teachers to get vaccinated and uh, respecting teachers' uh, desires, uh, how are they going to really actually uh, be able to move people into a slot they don't want to go into? 
Well, can we step back just a little bit? Um, much of the discussion of the whole COVID crisis has been as if this is a sort of normal business cycle where there's some unemployment that we have to deal with and some job closures, firm closures and job uh, endings and so forth. Um, in schools, it's all been about how do we make schools safe and so forth. What we've seen here is a rather unique experience where the harm to the current cohort of students is enormous. And this is a permanent harm. What we've done is lower the learning for an entire cohort of students or most of the cohort, some probably came out okay, but for most of the cohort. And that is gonna follow these students throughout their entire work life unless we do something about it. So part of this is just changing the conversation to in fact focus on who has been most harmed. The, the harm to future students livelihood is much, much, much greater than the total cost of the recession in terms of short run unemployment and firm closures. Well, and especially for uh, disadvantaged students, those uh, who come from uh, family backgrounds where the parents can't step in and do the teaching themselves so easily, uh, and, uh, and others that may have special needs. And one of your recommendations in, in one of your reports that I thought was especially on target was that we really should be compensating teachers who are effective at reaching our disadvantaged students. Uh, and that's something that I would think would be embraced by the Biden administration, which has sort of made equity one of its, uh, its uh, uh, points to emphasize. So uh, do you see any um, indication that the, uh, federal government's going to ask districts to really uh, compensate the teachers that are, are good at reaching our disadvantaged students? Well, I haven't seen it publicly yet. And in fact, what the federal government does best is speak from the bully pulpit and to try to get school districts and states to behave in a different way. This is really a task up to the states to do this. And a few states are starting to step up, but it's a long uh, road to hoe um, for the individual states. I would hope that the Biden administration that has been so forceful behind putting more money into all the school districts that they are also forceful in talking about what that money should be used for. Do we have any examples of school districts that are now sort of saying, yes, we know the learning loss has been most severe for the disadvantaged, and we want to use these resources to compensate teachers who are willing to take on this task and are good at it? I mean, that's sort of your recommendation, which I think is a terrific recommendation, but I'm just wondering, is there any chance that we can move in that direction? Well, before COVID, uh, we had a couple of good examples, actually. The best example in my mind is the Dallas Independent School District. The Dallas Independent School District developed a very extensive rating system for teachers and, and how effective they were in the classroom. And then they came around and said, the very best teachers 
that we've already identified by our rating system will earn substantially more money if they teach in our most disadvantaged schools. And they made it work. They showed that you could, in fact, induce the best teachers to go to the most difficult learning situations. And they showed that those teachers, once they moved to those difficult learning situations, could, in fact, lead to substantial improvements in student performance. The Dallas experience was so good, um, I think, that the Commission on School Finance Reform for the state of Texas basically adopted that idea and it became legislated into Texas law that there were incentives to any school district that emulated the Dallas experience where they in fact had a systematic way of identifying effective teachers and also putting those effective teachers into the places where they are most needed. Well, that's a great example. And uh, I do hope that other districts around the country uh, will, will follow up. Uh, how about the shortage of math and science teachers and uh, special education teachers, which has been around for a long time? I mean, couldn't we also use these uh, funds to uh, compensate people with special skills that are uh, difficult to attract into teaching because people with those skills are are highly uh, attractive uh, in other sectors of the economy as well. One of my favorite books is a 1962 book for, out of the Rand Corporation that discussed the problem of teacher shortages in specific subjects and identified the shortage of math and science teachers in 1962 and suggested that if we paid more market wages to math and science teachers, we might in fact be able to deal with this problem. The way the school districts um, and states have read that is, well, I guess we should raise everybody's salary um, so that we can get these math and science teachers, which of course means that you're paying more than you have to for other subjects where the supply is more plentiful. And we've never really solved this problem. So economists spend their days um, basically quoting a 1962 book, although most economists haven't actually read the 62 book. They just say, this is a, an obvious solution, but it's the same solution for both shortage areas. And one of our big shortage areas is in highly effective teachers. And so we ought to pay those highly effective teachers who are in short supply more to make sure that we get them into the classroom. That's what Washington DC has done to some real success. They've been able to keep their best teachers um, and the opposite end, not keep their least effective teachers. And you see it in district performance where the district performance has risen as they've paid attention to the effectiveness of their teaching force. Well, one of the concerns that uh, uh, comes up in a lot of discussions is the quality of our high schools. Uh, it, if you look at the data on student learning, uh, you can see improvements over time at the elementary level, 
much harder to see that at the high school level. When kids are graduating from high school, it looks like they, we don't see any improvement for 50 years. Uh, and I'm wondering if that couldn't be because we put high school teachers on the same uh, salary schedule as the elementary school teachers. They weren't historically, and they aren't in Europe, in Germany and in Britain and in most European countries. They're on a completely different salary schedule because you have to have a certain set. You got to know physics if you're going to be a physics teacher. You got to know chemistry if you're going to be a chemistry. This really requires a set of scarce skills that really should be rewarded with a different level of compensation if you expect to get quality teachers. So one solution could be with all of this money is to put into a system where you have the elementary and secondary teachers on a different salary schedule. Well, I'm a little bit worried about solutions like that because they often end up to be just pay everybody who's currently there more money. And we don't see any gains from that, except for the very long run where we attract a different set of people to go through different training programs to enter the classrooms and so forth. And by that time, the federal money has all run out. Teachers on average are paid more and we have the same quality teaching force. So I think that even though I agree completely with you of concerns over the high schools, I think there we cannot have these across the board solutions that haven't worked, that aren't focused on who's doing the job and how well they're doing it. So you do uh, say that we've got to get rid of uh, a lot of unnecessary restrictions, outdated rules and regulations. And, and in particular, you mentioned seat time as one of the rules that we should, uh, we should, because uh, I think right now to graduate from high school, you've got to spend so many hours and so many classes and, and get so many credits if you're going to graduate from high school. And I think that's called seat time requirements. It doesn't come based on how much you learn, it's based on how many times you, you've sat in a chair. So um, that all makes sense to me, but uh, wh what do you mean exactly by this, get rid of seat time? Well, that's, that's a good topic to bring up. There is actually a, another report of the um, Hoover Education Success Initiative that looks at our graduation requirements and certification requirements in some detail. And this dovetails with that. Um, the pandemic taught us a lot about this. The pandemic taught us that people didn't have to go to class, but they could be given the certificate that they would have gotten had they gone to class, exactly the same certificate as if it had the same meaning. What we've learned over time is that um, giving the certificate based on how long somebody's been in class is fairly arbitrary. And you know why we don't have closer to 100% graduation requirements, given that there's no rules on people knowing anything, um, it puzzles me. Why don't we have um, you know 98% graduation uh, from high school? If we don't, uh, if we're not paying attention to what people know, so I, I can agree with that. That we should be uh, paying more attention to uh, 
how well students are performing on end of course exams and uh, use that to uh, decide whether or not they're ready for graduation or to, or maybe to certify uh, that they have a specific set of accomplishments apart from graduation. Uh, but it, it, is this something that requires more money? Is there, is there any connection between this and educational finance? I don't think this is a finance issue per se. What we, what we do now is um, states pay districts essentially for how many people are in attendance every day. So it's, a, it's related in that way. But the, the larger issue is one of trying to focus on what we care about and that's the, the skills and learning of the students that we're not doing and we're doing less and less over time. So let me, let me be entirely clear of, of what that means. People say, well, the, a high school degree is worth X percent more than having dropped out on average. Um, as if, if we just re rename people who are dropping out as having a high school degree, they would get this difference. But in fact, employers, it turns out, are pretty sophisticated. And we see that they give quite different pay to people with exactly the same degree levels because they're learning about the skills that people have and the differences in what they know and can do. And it makes sense that we start to move our school systems more in that direction. Now, as you point out, this is not a pay issue. This is a matter of policy of what we're going to hold as being the important issues. Well, you um, mentioned now uh, learning over the internet, digital learning, uh, but didn't we learn from the pandemic that that's really not the same thing as learning in the seat, in the classroom, that in-person learning has a lot to recommend it. It can't be replicated very easily through online learning, at least as is being delivered today? Um, I think we're learning some of that. We don't have all the information in yet. What we do know with certainty, both before and during the pandemic, is that the teacher is essential, that we're not going to have classrooms with no teachers helping guide students, motivating them and correcting them, that even with more and more digital presentations, we also have the local teacher who's gonna be essential. Now, I think over the pandemic, we also um, had a huge amount of investment in how do you do uh, internet uh, um, over the uh, airwaves instruction. And I think we're gonna learn a lot from that experience. We're gonna see that it is possible to, to do some things better uh, with internet instruction as opposed to the normal. And I think we're gonna to have to do that because I think we're going to always have a fair amount now of hybrid digital learning. There seems like no possibility that September of 2021 will be the time in which all digital hybrid learning stops. Um, 
maybe you're suggesting that maybe it should stop all stop, but I don't think it's going to. So I think we have to worry a lot about how do we make that effective. And I think we're actually, I believe, we're actually getting information along those lines from the pandemic experience that we weren't getting before. Well, you know, there's some studies out there that show that uh, the online experience uh, really hasn't worked very well in the charter sector. The virtual charters are, don't seem to be nearly as good as, as other charters. And it also, there's this new study out uh, at West Point, which, you know, they had the same instructors, the same uh, textbook, everything was the same, except half the classes were online and half were in person in the middle of the pandemic. And the students taking the, uh, the course in person did a lot better on everything. And they were a lot happier with their class. So I, I found that West Point study a pretty convincing case because you know West Point students aren't going to be bad students. There's going to be variation there, but they're not going to be the you know the worst students out there. They're going to be pretty good students, and and yet there was a huge difference in how much they learned depending on whether it was online or or in the classroom. So I think that makes my point actually, Paul, that you can't do away with the instructor and the teacher involvement. But what we're learning. About I think is ways to use technology to make for more in effective instruction in general, where we have technology that aids the teacher as opposed to substitutes entirely for the teacher. Um, we're one of the places where I think we're going to, we, we already have, and we're going to learn more about is on personalizing learning because there's always been a discussion that we ought to pay more attention to where each student is as opposed to the average. But that was a pretty difficult task in many situations. We're now getting to a point where technology can help pinpoint where each student is and help to identify the instruction that should go to each student. And so that's an example of technology that can work in conjunction with the in-person uh, teacher and make that in-person teacher more effective. So I, I think I'm hearing you saying that you really like this blended learning model where the technology is used in the classroom by a teacher who knows how to use that technology, uses it to personalize the experiences that students are and to bring in expertise that the teacher may not personally have that can be brought to bear on the topic at hand. And, if we would sort of, uh, you know, get away from the standard ways of instruction within the classroom, uh, we could have a much more effective educational system. I, I believe that is the case. And I think we have some examples of places where they've really focused on identifying the skills of teachers, of students, and having the teaching directed specifically to where the students are. This is, as you point out, going to be extraordinarily important as we come out of the COVID experience. The COVID experience, without a doubt, has magnified the variations in what people learned over the last 16 months. And in particular, there are many, many disadvantaged students that didn't get the same support that more advantaged parents and families 
arrange for their kids, either through their own personal help or through hiring pods, whatever, that allowed their students to actually progress in these difficult times. So this sounds like uh, it could take a lot of additional resources to actually do this, to bring this equipment into the classroom and to, um, uh, to uh, really provide instruction to teachers as to how to make use of this kind of uh, educational approach. Because unless you've got a blending of the human capital and the technology, that technology is not gonna do you much good. It just sounds to me like it's a, it's a great big task and it takes a very strong administrative leadership to create this new environment that really might turn out to be more effective. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more that in the past where we've had supposedly technological solutions to teaching, we've often imposed some new technology on all the classrooms with insufficient preparation and training and development of the teachers. And so it hasn't worked all that well. I think that going into the future, if we talk about more technology, which I think has great advantages, we have to worry a lot about how we prepare and train our teachers and develop a core of teachers that are particularly good at using the new effective technologies. Now, I got to ask you one last difficult question because I just was told by Harvard University that we're going to wear masks on campus this fall. And the thought that we're going to have all the students sitting in a classroom with masks over their face. And I don't know what they're going to do with the instructors if they're going to ask the instructor to actually try to communicate through a mask uh, to, uh, you know, 50 or 100 students in a, in a classroom. Uh, What's your view, uh, and of course this applies to K-12 education too. This is, this is all up and down the line. How can you educate people with something, cover, with a, something covering your mouth? There certainly are hurdles that, can, that we can face, aren't there? Um, you know, what we're learning is that um, we're not very good at predicting where this pandemic is going and we're stumbling along trying to respond to it. Um, uh, I don't have an answer to this other than transparent masks. I haven't seen the transparent mask, but maybe that's the answer. Well, my guess is that there's an awful lot of uh, thinking about this question that doesn't pay any attention to how much students are learning. They may be paying attention to how much uh, COVID is spreading from one person to another, but they're not paying much attention at all to how much kids are learning. Well, we, that's what we learned in the last, since March of 2020, that uh, that hasn't been central to most of the discussions. Learning has not been the issue. The whole issue has been um, a statement of safety, which is important, but I think that people have used questions of safety to, in fact, distort the learning at the same time. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rick, for this discussion of what we are to do as we move forward, hopefully uh, with a pandemic coming to an end, but uh, realizing that uh, the spread of COVID is something which is uh, 
very difficult to uh, track and to predict. So uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Eric Hanyashek, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's the author of two new reports recently released by the Hoover Institution entitled Budgeting During and For Recovery and Does the World Change for Teachers? I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon Eastern time when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.